All right. So joining us in the studio today is Caleb Morse, the rustic renegade himself, the guy who is always on KPL when it comes to firearms, firearm safety, stuff like that. But wanted to get your thoughts on a very serious story that came from last week, and that is, of course, the, the mass shooting in Maine. We have uh, a, a former former military, mental health issues, AR-15. It's like got every marker for one of the big political gun control conversations that we have. So, Caleb, first of all, thank you very much for joining us today. I appreciate you having me, man. Um, and, and given your experience in all of these areas where it comes to veterans, military, comes to guns, and it comes to mental health, I, I, I knew that you'd be the guy to talk to on this. So just first of all, when it comes to, I think the, the biggest thing that we need to talk about here is the mental health aspect of mm-hmm. it, because there is very clearly a growing concern. And I think it has been for several years, but we it, it kind of comes in and out in terms of when we talk about it. And there's been so much going on in the news cycles, we don't. But the the rise in mental health issues among veterans, I think there's so much, particularly that people don't really know behind, you know, when it comes to actively serving there are a lot of things that are just a stress on the mind that I think a lot of people aren't really aware of. I think when you think about it, yeah, you can understand how that can be stressful on the mind, but they don't. You, you go there and you think it's all there and you don't think about it coming home with vets. There, there's a huge burden that happens when you come home. And so this guy, he was a, a National Guard veteran, mm-hmm. uh, and I did five years active duty Army, then about eight years total, uh, mm-hmm. give or take a little bit, in the National Guard. And what I learned in the National Guard was that the stress is – sometimes greater mm-hmm. than active duty service because down here you're, you're in a very, very close proximity to home. Mm-hmm. You've got a regular job. You have everything else that, that everyday citizen has here at home. Couple that with one week in a month trying to get 30 days worth of training in. Wow. Where active duty army, we have 30 days to get all of our training, uh, all of our, our required uh, classes, because there's multiple classes you have to take every quarter, sometimes every month. Mm-hmm. And some of those are situational awareness. The others are resiliency training and things like that, and then mental health briefs. Um, so you're trying to couple that into one weekend, into two to three days a month. And it adds a lot of stress. And that's why I think being a National Guard sometimes has a greater stress mm-hmm. stress load on the service member. Um with what's happening here, I, I, don't, I really don't know if he'd ever deployed. Mm-hmm. Uh, I've, I've kind of looked into it a little bit. I can't really find much about a service record, uh, but none of that stuff's really public knowledge. Right. Um, we do know that he went in and he, he asked for help. Mm-hmm. He asked for help multiple times. He was in a 31-day or a 30-day, uh, not a hold, but he went to facility. Mm-hmm. And the National Guard, active duty service, everything else has these places that they want to send you if you need help. Mm-hmm. You have to ask for help. Now, they can also, you can get referred by your chain of command. Yeah. Uh, so by your team leaders, squad leaders, platoon sergeants, uh, platoon commanders, company commanders, and so forth, all the way up the chain of command, mm-hmm. they can refer you to different places. The help is, it's there, but it's not what we think it is. Mm-hmm. So in the civilian world, if you go to your doc, your your employer, and you say, look, Joe, I'm, I'm stressed out today. It's a rough day. Uh, my wife and I are having problems. And, you know, I've got a newborn, and I'm just trying to figure out how to be a dad, how to be a husband, and still be a good soldier. That employer may look at you and go, you know what, take take a day off. Mm-hmm. Go home and, and, you know, figure it out. 
well, active duty service, that, that doesn't happen. You can't just say, hey, go take the day off. They have to, in turn, go to sick call in the next morning. Can't do it the same day normally. Uh, go through, see a doctor, do all this other. Then it takes them a while to go and see mental health. Mm-hmm. And it's a very long and arduous process. And then if you look at it as a veteran or the National Guard, it's just as long, if not a longer process. And if you go right here to the, the VA clinic here in town as a veteran, and you're like, look, I need some, I, I want mental health to reach out to me and talk to me. Mm-hmm. You have to go through a patient's advocate. Then you have to get wait for an appointment. Unless it's a life or death emergency right then and there, it's going to be months, months before you get help. Kind of the, the same old stuff we hear about the VA all the time, mm-hmm. just the, that same kind of process where it takes forever. And, you know, we think, well, not we think, but a lot of people think that the process and the prob- problem has been fixed. Mm-hmm. It is far from fixed. It is far from fixed. And the mental health side of it, Louisiana especially, white male veterans mm-hmm. have the highest suicide rate in the state of Louisiana. Mm-hmm. Louisiana has one of the highest concentration of veterans per capita. But yet, why is our suicide rate so high? It's because when we come back, when we get home, even here in the South where it's mostly conservative, we don't feel like we belong. Mm-hmm. Whenever you try to reintegrate in society, you feel like you're losing your family because you spent all this time with your brothers and sisters in arms, mm-hmm. and now they're being torn from you. Uh, when you ETS, in term of service, all of a sudden you lose your purpose and your identity, and you're trying to figure out who you are. And our mental health program doesn't really know how to deal with that. You know, a lot of veterans go through and they sit down and they say, what's the best way to fix this? And they self-medicate. And how do we self-medicate? Well, one thing Uncle Sam teaches us to do really well in the service is to drink. Mm -hmm. So most of the time, a lot of our service members end up as alcoholics and have problems and have to to go through addiction clinics and and all these other programs, which the VA has programs they offer for them. But they're just designed to recycle you and keep you going. It's still part of that, that bureaucratic military machine from what we see as a veteran on the inside, it's a horrible negative feedback loop with no way to get out of it. And, I, and from what I know from my experience, that's most likely where this guy was. Mm-hmm. He was stuck in that negative feedback loop and had no way to get out, asked for help. Now, am I, am I condoning what he did? No. No. The system failed him. Yeah. It failed him on every front. This could have been prevented. And we can sit here and say it could have been prevented by red flag laws. Mm-hmm. It could have been prevented by a number of things. Before we even got to that, the system failed him when he asked for help. I, I think that's such an important thing to remember because, again, like you said, you're not condoning. You're not trying to excuse it or explain it away. I mean, there are tons of people who are also in this negative feedback loop. They don't pick up an AR-15 mm-hmm. and go on a mass killing spree. But when there are big problems that need to be identified and, and worked with, and you have a, a system that's more bureaucratic than, than focused on the actual patient, mm-hmm. it seems. It, it sounds like it's just a recipe for disaster, which from anything dealing with the VA, we've seen that over and over again, where there are veterans who are neglected by the system and forgotten by the system. They're stuck waiting. I mean, another good friend of mine who's a veteran who is also named Caleb, there's I know a lot of Caleb's who are former actors. It's a service. good name, good name. Uh, but I mean, he every so I mean he he has some health issues, and every so often he's like, I just called the VA, and they told me, hey, in about three months I can maybe get in. Mm-hmm. It's just it, it's crazy how much of a bureaucracy, something that should be so vital in 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 our society, should be like taking care of the people 
who serve the country, who protect the country, it's it is just mind boggling that that the system's like that. Well, when you look at the call that we have for socialized medicine, mm-hmm. look at our our VA system, look at how broken that is. Mm-hmm. Now imagine that for everyone. It would be horrible, the way that our government does this. If we did it for everyone, it would be that much worse. Uh, if we can't get the VA fixed, we don't want this for everyone else. Trust me. Yeah. Um, and, you know, the help is out there. And it's we need to be able to communicate with one another and say, look, Joe, man, I'm having a bad day. You know, and have these real conversations with one another. We've all seen or read what the signs of suicide are, mm-hmm. right? Um, the way people talk, the way they start giving away things, their yeah. personalities change, everything else. And it's to sit down and say, hey, look, man, you want, we should talk. Mm-hmm. And take the kid gloves off. People who are in these positions, the people who are battling depression and everything else from it, they want to be talked to like human beings. They don't want us to talk to them like a, like a child and to tab him. I, I saw the same in, in the public education system mm-hmm. is there are kids who are trying to reach out, who, who they either give these red flags or they, they talk to an adult, but they want to be addressed like a serious person, not just dismissed. And the public education system in many ways has a lot of similar things. Like you've got to go through this certain chain mm-hmm. to get a kid reported, get them into the system or whatever. But oftentimes it seems like we work fairly efficiently on that. There are some times that we miss a kid and some kids fall through, but it's still kind of the same where there are people who are legitimately reaching out, but they get missed because the system seems overburdened. It, it is. It's very overburdened. But it's, it's, there are still people who care. You know, and when we look at this and we're trying to figure out ways, well, how do we prevent this from happening again? Because that's, we all want mm-hmm. to prevent this from happening again. You know, the first mass casualty event we had in the United States was the Bath School Massacre. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that happened in the early 1900s. It was done by a CPA for a school board who got let go. And he killed many, many innocent children, people, and animals. He had a mm-hmm. farm. He slaughtered all his animals, including his wife, and then went to the school and did more horrendous things. So... When we talk to people and they're like, well, this is a new thing. Mm-hmm. This, is, this is not new. Um, I wish I could remember the, the actual year that this happened mm-hmm. uh, for the Bath School Massacre uh, as I'm sitting there trying to, uh, 1927. So right. this is we're 100 years ago, mm-hmm. we can call it. This has been a problem and it's mental health needs to be addressed. And let's say to the people that are arguing that red flag laws could stop this. Whenever he went through and said, look, I need help, okay, he said, I'm having suicidal or homicidal thoughts, and I need help. At that point in time, with any of the red flag laws that are out there, if it had been reported and done to their standard, the next day or while he was getting help, who's going to go and get those firearms? Is law enforcement going to bust down his door, mm-hmm. cause damage to his property? And then at that point, take his firearms. They don't know if they're his, if they're someone else or anything else. Put them in evidence. Who are, gonna, who are they going to log those in from? the chain of custody on that is, is horrendous. Mm-hmm. And then when he gets out of getting aid, now he comes home and he's like, was I robbed? You know, so there's, there's many, many layers to yeah. this to, to figure it out. The alternative to that, like here in Louisiana, uh, we have a program that I help, I help start called the Armory Project. And what that is, if a, if a veteran is thinking of hurting themselves or hurting someone else, they can come to us and say, look, you know what? I'm having thoughts. I'm having some problems. I'm trying to get help. And can, can you hang on to my firearms for a little while? And we do that. We take them into our system. We maintain them. 
uh, for up to a year while the veteran, while the service member is getting help. And then whenever they're done and they come back, we give them back. I am not a mental health professional. Mm-hmm. I'm not going to sit here and do a diagnosis at the end of it and say, you know what? Yeah, you, you can have these back. The way that the law is written now is we're holding these in good faith. Mm-hmm. And when you come back in good faith, I, I'm going to believe you that you got help. And then we want you to take your firearms back because I don't want you to lose your second minute, right? I don't want you to lose the ability to protect yourself and protect others. I don't want you to lose the ability to hunt and provide for your family. I mean, these are things that I hold dear that I wouldn't want stripped away from. So why would I strip them from someone else? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and other states are looking at Louisiana. We're the first one to do this. Texas, Colorado, Oregon, uh, other states, Washington State, they're wanting to copy Louisiana for once and say, you know what, Louisiana is doing something right. So we need to be figuring out a way to reach out and say, hey, look, man, I care. I, I want you to see tomorrow. I want you to be here for, for the next 20, 30, 40 years. I, wanna, I, wanna, I want you to have more time on earth. And that's what should have happened with this. Mm-hmm. Because the red flag laws wouldn't have stopped it. And when they come out like now, uh, if you are deemed financially incompetent with the VA, okay? Mm-hmm. So let's say, Joe, I go to the VA and uh, I'm, I have a diagnosis for, for a condition that inhibits my thought or certain physical conditions. So like here, Parkinson's. Under the VA, if I'm diagnosed with Parkinson's, the moment I'm diagnosed, I'm no longer financially uh, responsible mm-hmm. and they assign a fiduciary. The moment they assign a fiduciary with the VA, guess what happens? I lose all rights to the Second Amendment. Just because I've got a sickness like Parkinson's. I still have clarity of thought at this point in time. Uh, I'm still cognizant of what's going on. But yet, they strip me of my my Second Amendment right. Mm -hmm. And then the VA will go through the processes and they will seize your firearms. How does that make sense? So let's say up there in Maine, uh, he went through and said, look, I need help. And now is the VA going to come out and send someone to his house to seize his guns? This is not a, a carte blanche, let's, let's rewrite the law and make new laws and strip people of all these rights. Because right. at the end of the day, this man went to an extreme. Mm-hmm. He hurt and killed many, many innocent people. But at the same breath, we don't want to strip each other of the rights that, that were God-given, not government-given. And there's no way to carte blanche just fix this. We have a human problem. Mm-hmm. It's not the firearms problem. It's not the firearms fault. It's an inanimate object. It serves no, pur- no purpose besides what you put into it. Just like with a fire, just like with a, uh, an automobile, it'll only travel where you send it. Same thing with a firearm. And here we have somebody who went way beyond what any normal, uh, self-aware or, or caring person would consider doing. And that's the thing that we need to look at is, is what drove him to this point that made him lose that self-aware, caring personality that we all have is in, in, innate into us. All right, so I want to, I want to kind of backtrack a little bit. Yeah, sorry, I went down some rabbit. No, holes. no, it, it, it's fine. <laughs> uh, let's let's go to we, we talk about the gun control argument because obviously this this springs up again. Now, Grant, we've got a whole lot that's going on. The, the world seems literally on fire right now. So a mm-hmm. lot of people this this unfortunately moved very quickly through the news cycle. Yes. And but but in the background, there's always going to be, hey, this guy had a big, scary gun, an AR-15. Uh, and once again, there's calls for getting rid of big, scary guns. Mm-hmm. Would getting rid of big, scary guns have helped in this situation? 
It, it doesn't seem like they ever would, but once again, those calls are out there. Like if we only didn't have AR-15s, these problems wouldn't happen as much. Well, and, you know, I had a discussion with, with someone recently, a family member, and uh, about a week ago, and their thing was, well, he had an AR-15. And, you know, that's a, that's a scary firearm that serves mm-hmm. no purpose. And I was like, okay, well, let's, in, let's entertain this conversation. Um, what's, what's scary about it? Um, well, and their exact response was, it goes bang, 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 bang. I was like, well, that's, that's not entirely true. It's not even mm-hmm. 50% true. Um, it's a semi-automatic firearm. You can only shoot as fast as you pull the trigger. Mm-hmm. We make 22s, we make 30-odd sixes, everything in between that has the same rate of fire. Mm-hmm. Okay, The 5.56 or, or the 223 Remington caliber, this firearm is, is what I would consider a medium game caliber. Mm-hmm. If you hunt with a 7 mag, a 270, a 30-odd six, or a 308, that's 40% at a minimum more powerful cartridge. With a further range, bigger payload, much more devastating. What scares people about it is the magazine capacity mm-hmm. and the look. It That's looks it. like a military style weapon. Yeah. That's the description you always hear. You and you're right. I I use a two seventy and a three oh eight. I alternate mm-hmm. between those two when I hunt. Um both of them I love the bolt action. Mm-hmm. Clearly a more powerful round. Mm-hmm. AR-15 just looks scary. It looks like a military-style weapon. That's, they keep saying that, and that's and and which I think is kind of bogus. When you, if the U.S. Army were just equipping AR-15s, it would be actually kind of sad we'd compared be very to very underpowered. Yeah, it, it it does not seem like that actually makes sense. But you're right. It's the bang, 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 bang. How fast can you pull the trigger? Well, it shoots really fast, but that's because people are are. I mean, it's you know, it's like kids who are play Call of Duty, hitting the trigger oh, yeah. on the on their you, Xbox. You controller. watch a kid play with play Xbox or do anything else, and they can work through those controls so fast because yeah. they they're familiar with it, right? Mm-hmm. They're they're accustomed to it, and they can work X Y Z square bumper bumper trigger trigger fast as all get out. And and when people say it, most of the time it's because it looks like a military rifle. The beauty of that for for the consumer is like my children when they were younger, mm-hmm. 10 years old and below. I bought them a 22 that has the same look, feel, function, controls of an AR-15. I can collapse the buttstock in. Mm-hmm. They have a lightweight firearm that I could train them and teach them with. And as they grew older, the gun was modular. The firearm was modular. So it grew with them. So I didn't have to buy a new rifle after three years mm-hmm. because they outgrew it. And... If we banned everything that looked military, then my tattoos would be banned. The tires of my truck would be banned. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, some of the attire that, that many of us wear out there would be banned. You know, the shoes that we wear came from military design. Most mm-hmm. of our sneakers came from military design. So all of this stuff has bled over into civilian use since the dawn of time, mm-hmm. down to hunting knives. The original military equipment wasn't designed just for the military. It was everyday equipment. When we look at World War One, the Springfield 1903 and 30 out six was a bolt action firearm design, designed after a hunting rifle. So they've always gone hand in hand. But yet now, because of what the media has told me, has told so many people about the AR-15 platform, it's just a scary firearm. And I, I think that it was Jake Tapper at CNN said in an interview with, with somebody like, yeah, of, of course, the media leans left on a lot of these issues, because how many of these reporters who come from J schools and things like that, how many of them 
have actually had experience with a gun. Not very many. It's the same as uh, a friend of mine who's in Florida. Uh, he he was a, uh, a political commentator on online. It hit, he had a tweet that went viral at one point. Uh, how many reporters today know somebody who owns a truck? And it seems like a mm-hmm. very silly question, but then you think about it like, it's really the case. How many people working in the elite media, the mainstream media outlets, how many of them have any practical experience even seeing somebody fire a gun or have, or know somebody who's like an average flyover country American who's driven a truck? Not mm-hmm. very many when you think about it. No, they're not. I, mean, I have friends in, in New York, uh, upstate or in New York City and everything else who have never even driven a vehicle, right? And mm-hmm. when I talk to them about owning a firearm and hunting, they are, it just blows their mind. I'm like, look, you don't understand the the just the purity of going out and harvesting your own game, mm-hmm. and then eating it that afternoon. I mean, the meat's a better quality. the The meal itself feels like a better quality. You get just a, a more surreal environment, more surreal ambiance about the entire thing because you did this. Mm-hmm. If you ask the average person now where steaks come from, they'll tell you Super One or Brookshire's or right. Rouse's, right? They, they don't know that it comes from cows anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, and even when I first joined the service, when I, we went out to do BRM, basic rifle, and marksman, rifle marksmanship, there were people who had never shot a firearm before. That's, that's crazy. And we, we take that, in Louisiana, we take that for granted. Mm-hmm. You know, we are the sportsman's paradise. And there are people out there who have never shot a firearm, never done anything like that. After I got out of the service, when I went work in the oil field for a little while, there were there were guys, veterans, veterans. These are grown men who had never swung a hammer, mm-hmm. so they had to learn how to swing a hammer in, in their in their mid thirties. But it's just we have these skills that that we don't use anywhere else, and we take them for granted. Right. It, it's it is again. It sounds silly. Grown men who have never swung a hammer before, but you think about it, there are a lot of folks who come from vastly different backgrounds, which is one of the things that makes. America is so great and unique is that we have so many people from so many various backgrounds who bring all sorts of experiences to the table, but then we want to legislate the morality mm-hmm. of one particular group over all these other diverse groups. We want to legislate that uh, that East Coast urban uh, upper class morale, sense of morality across the entire country when there's so many vastly different experiences and it really just kind of, I think, takes away from the American experience to try to take that away from people. Well, it's, you know, we judge other people by their actions. Right. And we judge ourselves by our intentions. Mm-hmm. You know, and, and it's hard, man. It, it's hard to look at people evenly. You know, especially like when here we're, we're talking about uh, this veteran who went out and hurt so many people. Mm-hmm. And we want to know the reason behind it. We want to know, hey, what did, what did the, the notes say? Mm-hmm. You know, what did he leave behind? What caused him to do all this? Because we want to understand what caused this to happen. But we're looking at it logically. We're looking at it saying, hey, if we can, if we can find the root cause to this, we can solve that problem. Well, the root cause is not the fact that he had a firearm. Yeah. The root cause is he was no longer thinking logically. He was no longer thinking sanely. Something was broken in this man mm-hmm. that made him think it was okay or not necessarily okay, acceptable to go out and kill this many people. Mm-hmm. And, and what caused that? 
that's going to be something intrinsic. And if that's not in his letter, then we need we need to do some soul searching and look into it and see, okay, was there something from birth? Mm-hmm. Or is there a moment in time when we're like, you know what, this is where he felt failed. And then once we failed him, then this happened and this happened and this happened. And at that point in time, he was just lashing out. Yeah. And this is this is a horrible way to lash out. And it, it's it's one thing I, I know I've said repeatedly, and I know that you I know that you understand as somebody who uh, who handles guns literally every day, mm-hmm. it takes a very, very concerted effort to detach yourself away from humanity enough to take another life. I mean, it's just there is the the very the very idea of humanity is that connection to one another and mm-hmm. to separate yourself from that and to be able to pull the trigger even once on another human being is, I think, one of the most difficult choices somebody could make. But if you're willing to go to the lengths that, say, this guy in Maine did, something has broken that tether, whether, like you said, it's from birth, it's a sociopathy, or whether something in his life just broke that tether for him, that's what we should be looking at. What is breaking this tether from society, from humanity, with these people who commit these acts? You know, one of the things that I get told, not not asked, but told mm-hmm. in every concealed carry class that I've taught, and I've been teaching concealed carry uh, since 2008, 2009. Every class, someone tells me, I, I just, I don't want to kill another human being. Mm-hmm. Good. You shouldn't, you shouldn't want to do that. And that's why we teach about situational awareness, to get ourselves away from that, mm-hmm. to be able to recognize someone that's not thinking properly. Yeah. You know, and, and when we see where he went to the bowling alley and everything else, my thought was, look, this is horrible. Where was where was a concealed carry holder? Mm-hmm. Where was somebody? And look, I've gone bowling and done everything else. If I go there, there's a firearm there, mm-hmm. you know, because I don't. I carry a firearm because I can't carry a police officer. Justin yeah. said that the other day, mm-hmm. and I'm there to protect myself and my family. Where was the the one person that's, that that I can't be alone in that thought process? Yeah, and I I, I feel so bad that this went on for as long as it did. Yeah. That there wasn't someone up there that that had that more that in intrinsic moral obligation. As a concealed carry holder, you have no legal duty to act. Mm-hmm. You don't have to try to be the hero. Right. But some of us in our core want to help humanity. Mm-hmm. We want to make it better. And re- regardless of what we all think, we're not too far gone. We can save this world. There's still so much good left to do, but we have to be the ones to do it. We have to be the ones to step up and say, not in my town, not today. This can get better. And it could be something as simple as picking up trash on the side of the road. It doesn't have to be trying to stop a mass shooter. It could have been calling the police earlier, come and locking the door. Mm -hmm. There's a number of ways for this to happen. And uh, it hurts my heart. It hurts my soul uh, that this happened. But I also understand that as long as as long as mankind is broken, it's going to happen again. Hurt people hurt people. Mm-hmm. I've heard that many times. And this man was hurting. And I wish that someone would have stepped up and said, you know what? I care. Let's get you the help that you need. He's asked for help before, and he was discarded. That's what happened. Caleb Morris with the Russell Grenegade. Thank you very much for uh, joining us today and, and kind of walking us through. And there's so many issues. We could probably go 
a couple hours talking oh, about easily. this because there's so much. But thank you very much for lending your expertise in on this as well. I appreciate you, Joe.